This is Andy Paul, author of Sell Without Selling Out, A Guide to Success on Your Own Terms. And you are listening to The Marketing Book Podcast. Welcome to The Marketing Book Podcast, helping you keep up with the smartest thinking in the quickly changing field of modern marketing. And now, here's your host, Douglas Burdett. Hello, thanks for joining me on the Marketing Book Podcast, where each week I publish an interview with the author of a new marketing or sales book, and which has been named as one of the top marketing podcasts by Forbes and LinkedIn, amongst others. Don't worry about taking notes. You can find links to everything linkable in this episode's website page at marketingbookpodcast.com. And since I get to read every book featured on the show, if I can recommend a specific marketing or sales book or any other resource I know of for whatever challenge you're facing, send me a link. LinkedIn connection invite with a message that you're a listener, and I will do my best to get you pointed in the right direction. My name again is Douglas Burdett. This episode is sponsored by the first of its kind NYU Executive Masters in Marketing and Strategic Communications. Find your path to the C-suite. I'll have more on that in a few minutes. Now let's get on with the show. Today, we welcome Andy Paul to talk about his book, Sell Without Selling Out, A Guide to Success on Your Own Terms, published by Page Two. From Page Seven in the book, I received an excellent early sales and business education by selling computer and software systems to mid-sized businesses in the Bay Area. There was no better learning experience at the start of a sales career than being able to chat with successful entrepreneurs about how they built their businesses and how I could help them achieve their next level of growth and profitability. I grew from that beginning into positions where I sold hundreds of millions of dollars worth of complex communications products and services to very large enterprises around the globe. For years, I lived on airplanes, winning big deals on every continent but Antarctica. I've grown sales teams at successful startups and some that weren't so successful. I've run my own sales consulting business for 20 years, helping companies turn around underperforming sales teams. I've published two previous sales books, and I created and host the Influential Sales Enablement Podcast with Andy Paul, featuring more than a 1,000 conversations with some of the best and brightest minds in the industry. In 2020, I sold my podcast to Ring DNA, a high-growth software-as-a-service startup. Any success I've achieved, I attribute to one decision I made at the very beginning of my sales career. I was determined to act and sell in a way that aligned with who I am as a person, my values, and character. I didn't see a choice. Otherwise, it was going to be a very short career. And interesting fact about Andy Paul, he has logged nearly 2 million airline miles in his career. Andy, congratulations on Sell Without Selling Out, and welcome to the Marketing Book Podcast. Douglas, thank you very much. I'm so excited to be here. Well, by law, I am required to interview you yes. uh, by podcast. Yes. Yeah, because uh, you're a Stanford graduate. Uh, you have a Stanford degree. And for some strange reason, over the nearly 400 interviews I've done with authors, there have been more authors with Stanford degrees than anything else. So I'm starting to think maybe some years ago they asked a question in the application that said, you know, if you're accepted, will you consider writing a marketing or sales book? So, <laughs> Yeah, if only I'd known at that time. Yeah, yeah. right. Yeah, no, I had, boy, when I was at Stanford, being in sales was the furthest thing from my mind. Yeah, but uh, I can, right off the top of my head, I can think of another guy, Aaron Ross, who's written some fantastic sales books, who has a Stanford degree. He wrote uh, Predictable Revenue and uh, From Impossible to Inevitable, just a fantastic book. So, yeah, and now he's in Scotland. Yes, that's right. That's right. 
See, I, I knew that, and I'm not in, you know, I don't, I don't know that Stanford secret handshake, but I certainly know a lot of these folks. So I guess I should take out an ad in the alumni magazine thanking them for sending so, so, so many authors of great books to uh, be able to interview. So keep it up, folks. So now, I uh, posted on LinkedIn that you uh, were going to be interviewed on the podcast, and of course, you know, there's lots of very uh, incisive questions from listeners, uh, one of which is, are you related to the American guitarist and inventor Les Paul? No, not at all. Okay. Are you related to Senator Rand Paul? God no. <laughs> so, well that's that's okay. That pretty much is all the listener questions. Yeah. Well, very good. Now, you live in San Diego. Is that uh is that correct? Yeah. I mean, part-time. So, part-time. I live in live on both coasts. Live in both New York City and San Diego. Okay. So, do you know Ron Burgundy? Uh, I know of Ron Burgundy. Yes. Okay, but you've never met him. You know, I uh have learned so much about San Diego from Ron Burgundy. It's a fact. It's the greatest city in the history of mankind. (laughs) (laughs) Discovered by the Germans in 1904, (laughs) they named it San Diego, which of course in German means a whale's vagina. And uh, I know the listeners who... One of the best movies of all time. Thank you. Yes, I I agree. It's one of the greatest uh, in the the American film archive. And uh, now my listeners uh, who speak German and, you know, Austria, Germany, Switzerland, they're going to maybe disagree with that. But if Ron Burgundy said it, it, you know, I'm going to go with that. So on to your book. It is uh, a very interesting size. It's five by seven. And beautifully written. It really is. And it's, it's so well written that I hopped onto LinkedIn to see if maybe you were an English major. Uh, you were a history major, though. I was a history major. So, I mean, had to write a lot as a history major, but uh, I had a great editor. That's what I like to say. <laughs> oh, good. Well, and just a, a simple uh, thing that I do is I, I really look for books that have been published by outfits like Page Two or, or bigger publishers, just because I know that the authors have uh, been tortured and suffered uh, at the hands of an editor. <laughs> it just makes it that much better. Although there have been some self-published books on the show that have been uh, a great read, but I was also very excited because I'm a book nerd. I, 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 you know, I plead guilty to that. I was uh, delighted to see several, a lot of people endorsed it, but uh, several that I've been able to interview uh, in the past, like Jill Conrath and Mike Mm -hmm. Weinberg and David Premer, uh, Mm -hmm. whose book, uh, Sell the Way You Buy, kind of reminded me of some of the the points that you make in your book. Anthony Anarino, who we're going to talk about, uh, Drew Nicer, and and even uh, Jeb Blunt. So on the book's cover, you include Jill Conrath's endorsement, which... I agree with. Andy Paul has written the new How to Win Friends and Influence People. That was terrific. I, I read that and I thought, we'll see. Yeah, I, I think so, Andy. Uh, <laughs> you're successful. And I just have to mention one other thing about the book that I, on a personal note, I think we may have had the same parents, Andy, because at one point in the book, you talked about how your parents were, you know, they wanted you to behave so that you wouldn't embarrass them, but also probably so you wouldn't embarrass yourself. And my, you know, my parents did the best they could, obviously, any listener to the show will know that. But also there was one line on page 39 that uh, you said your dad would always tell you, which is, at the end of our lives, the only thing people will remember of us is our character. (laughs) I thought, boy, that is definitely the the example my dad set. So I really like that. That was just one of many things that I, I really enjoyed. And 
Before we go much further, though, I want to mention there's always a first-time listener on the show, and they're thinking, this is the Marketing Book Podcast. Okay, why is there a book on sales on the Marketing Book Podcast? Good question. And the reason why is because I like sales books. (laughs) I get so many marketing, particularly content ideas, from reading sales books. But I guess more importantly, the, the most successful marketers are the ones that have a deep understanding of all aspects of sales, what the salespeople are doing, what the challenges are, and even more importantly, the, the challenges and the mindset of the buyers. So mm-hmm. I think these uh, you know, marketers should lead, read at least one sales book a year, if not more. In, uh, and then after you've read it, if you think it might be helpful for your sales team, buy them all a copy of the book and give it to them. You'll help build a bridge and they might start to think, wow, that's a different kind of marketing person. So I would encourage them to do that with this book. Yes. Oh, <laughs> yes. Uh, especially if you have a big, uh, a big sales team. But yeah, this is one that I, I think they would, they would really like. And one of the things, well, many things in the book I really liked about it is that there's a line in there where you talk about how, you know, in sales now, if all you are doing as a seller is providing information that a buyer can get somewhere else, you're not going to make it. And this book, for me, really goes into how you're going to be successful as a salesperson in this era when with a super informed buyer. And also, why I think that sellers in the future are going to be even more richly rewarded because it's just gotten that much more difficult, but uh, it can it can be done. And there's lots of areas where you can help Uh, your buyers. So let me just read uh, one excerpt from uh, page one, actually. You write, this book is not another work of fiction (laughs) about how you can morph overnight into a sales superstar. There's none of that BS here. This book is about making the choice to turn your back on the salesy behaviors that are so embedded in modern sales, behaviors that make everyone cringe, including you. That's the selling out part. It's about learning how to become consistently proficient at selling simply by understanding what's most important to your buyers and then helping them get it. That's the selling in part. Perhaps most importantly, this book is about learning how to experience the energy, impact, and fulfillment that come from being the best version of yourself in any sales situation. You're going to like sell without selling out. It's full of road-tested ideas that you can quickly and easily put to use in your selling today. Start with just one, something that will make a difference. So another thing I loved about the book is you've got lots of stories in here. Now, they're not too long, but they really, uh, you know how it is with stories. That's the parts you remember. And I want to start with one of them that was on um, page uh, 15. And you write, especially relevant to the young uh, salespeople out there. My first sales training class took place in the basement of a Holiday Inn in Pasadena, California, a block from the route of the annual New Year's Day Rose Parade. I sat in a darkened room with 30 other newbie salespeople watching a video of a creepily sincere, slick-haired con man. This top trainer, with a demeanor reminiscent of an early Sunday morning TV preacher, was teaching us how to sell. And here are four of the things he was teaching you. How to open a conversation with a phony icebreaker. How to bully through objections. How to trial close with misdirection. How to use persuasion to hammer the prospect into submission. So, Andy, going forward, rather than talking about what's actually in the book, can we just talk about those four areas? Because I think that would really be helpful. (laughs) (laughs) So, in that class, however, you mentioned, I guess almost right off the bat, that there was you noticed something that was off about nearly every other person in the class. And at first you couldn't put your finger on it, but then it hit you. What was it? 
Well, they were also salesy. I mean, it's like they're putting on an act that this is the way salespeople are supposed to behave. Uh-huh. And I looked at that and said, I can't do that. <laughs> I can't be that person. Um, and if I have to be that way, I'm going to have, yeah, the world's shortest sales career. So just to go back to a couple things that I started to touch on with the introduction, this is a, you've got a great chart on page 22 and 23, which couldn't make it clearer. We can't go through all of it, but I was wondering if you could just contrast some of the concepts of selling out with selling in. Uh, for instance, for instance, the very first one, selling out would be a pitch, right? Mm-hmm. And selling in is something radical called a conversation. Yeah. Well, I mean, that's just a source. One to frame the conversation starting with that or the discussion starting with that is, yeah, most sellers are trained. Yeah. You make a call, it gets on the line, pitch them your product. What's your elevator pitch? Mm-hmm. As opposed to, why don't you ask them a question, see what they're interested in before you say anything. So default to a conversation as opposed to a pitch. Yeah. And you've got uh, persuasion versus influence, which we want to talk about. Selling out would be changing minds. But selling in is helping make up minds, <laughs> helping, well, uh, helping them just, make a decision. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, if you're really sort of coming from the selling out perspective and you're driven by this persuasion mindset, then yeah, you, in your mind's eye, you're trying to get somebody to change their mind from whatever they're thinking of right now or whatever they're doing now, as opposed to, well, let me see what's really important to them and help them make up their mind about what could come next that would be better. Mm-hmm. And what's really important and you've also got selling out is knowledge, selling in is understanding, which we're also going to talk about if we have time. I Probably my favorite, of there must be 15 of them on here, but selling out is being a know-it-all, which made me think of a person who just wants to spout all their product information. Mm-hmm. Uh, and selling in is a learn-it-all, <laughs> really learning, understanding uh, the customer. So jumping ahead, though, you write that sales is a human business. So I really hate to say this, but sellers aren't very good at selling to humans. <laughs> Explain what you mean there. Well, the, the business of sales in so many industries has become so process-driven, right? And we're going to automate how we do our outreach, and we're going to be lightly personalized when we do that, and we're going to have these superficial conversations when we finally do touch bases with you. It's as if there's become this belief embedded in so many salespeople that if I just follow the process, this is going to work. But it doesn't matter if, how well you've identified your ideal client profile or the persona you're talking to. The person you're talking to is an individual. The way they look at the world, the way they process information, you know, the way they just their lived experiences prior to talking to you, they're all different. And so you have to treat every situation as being unique and every person as having a unique story that you need to find out. Right. So why will sales managers be angry that their salespeople are reading this book, Andy Paul, you troublemaker. Because they just want them to follow the process. Just shut up <laughs> right. and do what we tell you to do. Yeah. Right? You know, which reminds me of David Premer's book, who I mentioned, who's endorsed yours. He was at Salesforce doing really well. And he was telling these people uh, to telling his team to do exactly what you were just describing. I'm, you know, probably uh, cracking a very kind and uh, a kind Canadian whip, you know, being very nice mm-hmm. and polite. But then he got to back to his office and said, I would hate it if somebody did this to me. Right, right. <laughs> and that led to the whole book called Sell the Way You Want to Buy. And it was just, it, it was great. So anyway, I mentioned Anthony Anarino. Yeah. 
He wrote, Andy Paul obliterates outdated legacy approaches to sales, the revolting behaviors that repel buyers. He replaces them with the most human of attributes and strategies that will accelerate your client's decisions and your results. Death to salesy. That's, that's one of our key hashtags. Here. Yes, yeah. yes. And we're going to encourage folks to use that. So, Well, but we're trying to – it's really important. As, as, as I talk about in the book and one of the stories is – we just a way of background is, you know, we train salespeople to become salesy, you know, and behaviors that, that make buyers resist or react negatively, let's say. And, <laughs> you know, those are just learned behaviors and we could stop all of those salesy behaviors today and no one would be worse off for it. Mm-hmm. And yet we've created a whole industry around sort of perpetuating them. And so, yeah, death to salesy is this idea is that, Let's just stop, right? We can we can all make this decision. Let's just stop these things. <laughs> Very subversive idea. Yeah, that, in fact, you're right. The next step in taking control of how you sell is to refuse to act in ways that buyers automatically resist. Here's the thing. Selling is very simple. So, yeah, and that's where you also talk. The vast majority of sales training you've observed is designed to teach sellers how to be more salesy. Salesy. In fact, you said that you almost it almost cost you your job by not being salesy earlier sure. in your career. Tell that story. Well, as a result of my first training class you started describing with the, the excerpt from the beginning is, yeah, two weeks after I joined my first job working with a company called Burroughs Corporation, at the time, second largest computer company in the world, sent to a regional training center in Pasadena, there for two weeks, we're learning how to sell. But like, a lot of the tech companies of that day is they recruited hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of new college grads to put them in these training programs, basically designed to winnow out those that aren't going to make it and be left with sort of the cream of the crop. And the winnowing started pretty early. So <laughs> it sounds you, like it was almost that first day. <laughs> yeah. I mean, so you, you come back from that training class with an assessment of how you did and you have to hand it to your, your boss and I handed mine to my boss. I went back to my desk and he, came back into the sales bullpen and summoned me to his office and he was sitting there reading the evaluation. I said, so how do you think you did? <laughs> and I thought, Which tells you it's not going to be good. <laughs> it's not going to be good. Right. The trap question is like all in the book. And I said, Oh, I thought it went okay. He says, Oh, interesting. They think we should fire you. because <laughs> I was too analytical. I wasn't salesy enough. And I, well, first of all, my first instinct was, okay, what am I going to tell my parents? I'm going to get fired after two weeks of my first job, <laughs> right. right? We all we all default to that. As the yeah. But then I was like, oh, no. Yeah, I got to find – there's a way to make sales work for me, not the other way around. Mm-hmm. And I was determined determined to find that. And it's yeah, – I use this question example in the book. You know, I call it the one question a buyer will never ask you. And the, that question is, is, you know, Maybe you're the sales, pretend you're the salesperson. If I'm the customer, I, you know, Douglas, you know, I really like your product, uh, but I don't think I can buy from you because you're just not salesy enough. Could you be more salesy? <laughs> right. right. Yeah. Maybe if I was being cast for a movie uh, right. with a, um, you know, as a, as a, a sales guy. Always be closing. <laughs> <Yeah>, right. <laughs> you know, no one wants that behavior, right? No one, I mean. I cite in the book, Jonah Berger wrote the book, The Catalyst. Uh, Who has a Stanford degree. Oh, does he? Yeah. When you're the Marketing Book Podcast host, you keep track of this kind of trivia. Okay. All right. Well, I just, know he, I just know he teaches at Wharton. But, yes. but he talks about in his book how, as humans, we instinctively resist being persuaded. 
right? Universally, yeah. every one of us, just instinctively. It's called reactance. Reactance, right. Oh. So it makes all the sense in the world then that we continue to spend billions of dollars a year to train sellers how to be persuasion driven. Uh, because, yeah, yeah, let's train our people to act in a way that our buyers instinctively resist. So have you had uh, assignments with, with uh, clients where they have said, you know, we, we want more of that salesy kind of thing, or do they already know what they're getting into when they're, they're dealing with you? Uh, or maybe have they already tried it unsuccessfully? I think they try it unsuccessfully, and they're saying, well, hey, what, what can we do different? Why isn't, <laughs> why isn't this working? Yeah. And it, the reason that it's not working oftentimes is the simplest of reasons, which is the buyer's experience with you as a seller wasn't very positive. Yes. Yeah. Yes. I mean, they have a choice. And in the world we live in today, and it's increasingly become this way over the last 20 years, and is becoming even more so going forward as we're more software-driven, is that it's very, very difficult to establish and maintain any sort of meaningful product differentiation. Mm-hmm. You know, in the software world, if you're you know, in a category that's like conversational intelligence, uh, you know, 10 or two years ago, maybe there's 10 companies that now there's 30, right? Mm-hmm. So from a buyer's perspective, it's, well, how am I differentiating those products? Because they all basically do somewhat the same thing. Well, it's based on their experience in the process of buying with the seller, we know from the challenger sale and from research from Gartner and Forrester is that, you know, the preponderance of the buyer's decision is based on their experience with the seller. Yes. Uh, you may know Lee Sauls. I do know Lee, yes. And he's written a couple of just fantastic books about, you know, sales differentiation and sell mm-hmm. different, where he explains that, you know, there's certain things you can do to differentiate your company, okay? And, and, and he even includes them in the book. These are some things you could probably be doing. But the biggest differentiator a company can have is how they sell. And like your book, it's just, there's absolutely no arguing with it. Yeah. Well, and it's, <laughs> I said, it's been the case. It's going to be increasingly the case. And, you know, one of the things that, that's sort of, you know, enduring source of frustration, back to what I was talking about in the beginning of the book, or beginning of our conversation, is that, you know, it's, we're in this age because of the technology is that many managers find it easier to lean into the technology rather than really learn how to manage and develop their individual sellers. Mm-hmm. So that's why they, that's why they feel safer defaulting to a defined process rather than saying, I want to help you become the best version of yourself. Yeah. But Andy Paul, that's harder. Yeah. So, I mean, yeah, it is harder and that's why it doesn't, doesn't happen very often, <laughs> not very often, but it doesn't happen as much as it needs to. And the self-aware sales leader understands that and invests in that. Yes. And bonus, you even have a special intermission in your book just for sales managers. Yes. (laughs) Very funny. Yeah. So in the intermission, as as much as I draw a distinction between selling out and selling in, is I draw a distinction between a sales leader and just a sales boss. Mm Mm-hmm. And the boss are those that, that... that's it, really focus on the process and the metrics of what's happening as opposed to how am I helping this individual becoming the best version of themselves? How am I giving them the autonomy and to say, look, this is, this is your business, right? This list of accounts, this geographic territory, whatever, this is your business. I mean, I started in sales. It was pretty standard. It's your boss said, hey, you're the CEO of your territory. And I don't, it's not that I don't completely care what you do, but you know, if, if you're acting ethically and within the framework of how we sell, 
do what you need to do. You know, act in the way that, you know, you don't have to follow a specific step-by-step process. Be the boss of the business. And fortunately, that worked out pretty well for you early on, where you were, you were generating the results, but maybe they didn't like necessarily the way you were doing it. Uh, well, maybe they didn't agree necessarily. It's not they didn't like. I mean, I think that everybody sort of wants managers are default to thinking there's a best way to do something. Mm-hmm. Um, I probably at some level think that too. But on the hand, I've always operated my career as like, I'm just one person. How do I know it's that's the only way to do things? Mm-hmm. Right? <laughs> yeah. So I want to encourage people to say if there are 5 million salespeople in the United States, let's say, then there's 500 unique ways of selling. Mm. And there will always be by definition because it's humans doing this. So how do I, instead of trying to help you be like someone else, how do I help you become the best version of you? Yes. And uh, so talk about uh, the difference between a sales leader versus a sales boss brings to mind a book that was on the show a few years ago called the, uh, it was a very funny satirical book called the Sales Survival Guide. And mm-hmm. uh, he wrote that sales managers don't become sales managers because they know how to sell. They become sales managers because they know how to yell. <laughs> <laughs> well, there is, there is some of that, right? Right. For sure. Because we do, as a, as a profession, and also in various industries for sales leaders, we don't help them enough, right? Is, is the people that get the least amount of coaching and training are our frontline sales managers. Mm-hmm. And there's this, just this assumption, this is true in sales, I'm sure it's true in other disciplines as well, but people assume that if you hold a title, you hold a title as a sales manager, thus you must know how to manage. Or, <laughs> where, where you might have actually just been a really good seller. Well, that's exactly right. Yeah. And you know nothing about managing. It's not a, it's not a personal fault that you don't. You've uh-huh. just never been given the opportunity to learn and be trained and coached. Mm-hmm. And you know, I see this in my consulting business where there will be chief revenue officers that are reluctant to approach their CEO to say, look, I could use some help because they're afraid the CEO will say, well, you've got that title. Why do you need help? Mm-hmm. Don't you know everything you need to know? Yeah. I, I remember a friend of mine who had a sales uh, franchise uh, training, and he said he was never hired by uh, sales managers because the sales managers knew they were going to get yelled at for asking for him. They, they, yeah. had to, they had to get hired by the CEO, or the sales manager might have thought, uh, we, we don't want to do that. But it was, a, it was a similar dynamic at play there. They didn't want to show weakness. Yeah. yeah. But that's the point. It's exactly true in my yeah, you know, twenty plus years of my sales consulting business, I've only been hired by CEOs. Mm-hmm. So that for that same reason, yeah. Marketing and communications are changing rapidly. Get ahead with an NYU Executive Masters, the first of its kind Executive MS in marketing and strategic communications, elevates your leadership advantage. Designed for marketing and PR executives on the rise who wish to accelerate or pivot in their careers, this new NYU degree provides the skills and insights to drive growth and impact for the businesses and organizations they lead. Developed and delivered by a globally recognized research and teaching university, it prepares you for the unprecedented changes occurring in these fields, offers invaluable networking opportunities with industry thought leaders, and provides the NYU competitive advantage that will position you for success. Complete in just 18 months of part-time study through four weekends each semester in New York City and through online remote weekly content. 
Find your path to the C-suite, the new NYU Executive MS in Marketing and Strategic Communications. Apply today for fall 2022. For all the details, visit this episode's website page at marketingbookpodcast.com. So earlier I mentioned uh, influence versus persuasion, which is really important in sales, but also it's going to be of great interest to the marketers. So page 51, for those playing the home game, explain what you mean when you write that despite the best efforts of various sales experts and sales trainers to conflate and interchangeably use the words influence and persuasion, they are not the same thing. Yeah. And this is, this is funny. This has drawn a fair amount of attention because there's got my attention. (laughs) Yeah. People have been saying the same thing forever. I mean, look at Cialdini's book, you know, you know, psychology, there are influenced the psychology of persuasion Um, is, is just look at the definitions of the words, right? And persuasion is all about prevailing upon someone, you know, what look up the word prevailing. I mean, it's, it's basically persuasion is about coercion fundamentally, right? Is yeah. use of force to get somebody to come over to your point of view. It's Whereas, a blunt instrument of last resort that sellers use when they don't understand how to influence the choice their buyers make. Right. <laughs> Just a quote from a really good book. Oh, well, yeah, I like that quote too. And influence is, is about having an, an effect upon the thinking and actions of others without the apparent use of force. And I think this is what you're trying to do in sales is you're not trying to persuade someone to come across to your point of view, what you're trying to do is you're trying to listen, understand what's most important to them. And then in the process of helping them get those things that are important to them, you're influencing the choices and trade-offs they make. And you're influencing because the buyer, you built up that level of trust where the buyer opens the door to you to influence them. Yeah. There's a great quote on page 53 where you write, sellers who believe that their job is to persuade buyers to purchase their products or services are selling drills. Sellers who help their buyers identify the problems they need to solve and define their options for achieving their desired outcomes are selling holes. <laughs> it's just one of so many things. It's an eminently quotable book. So, <laughs> Yeah. Well, I mean, that whole drills versus holes things. Yeah. I don't feel call, but that that originated, if I remember correctly, I think it's like 1928 in one of the tabloid sheets in New York City, a copywriter, an advertising copywriter coming up with something about that, right? Is is that you know people aren't looking to buy drills, they're looking to buy holes. And it's just such a useful way of thinking about the job you're undertaking as a seller is when you're out talking to your sellers every day, what are you trying to help them do? Mm-hmm. They're they're trying to buy a hole. It, you know, that's what they want to buy. <laughs> they don't really care that much about the drill. They don't really care that much about the drill at all. Yeah. And this is this thing that when you think about it from a if you lead with persuasion, if you think your job as a seller is to go out and persuade somebody to buy your product, is you're trying to you're assuming that you understand exactly what is most important to them. It has to be your product. And this is this is the default modus operandi for, for so many sellers. And this is the way they're trained. As opposed to saying, yeah, I'm not really sure what the buyer's problem. In fact, the buyer really isn't completely sure the scope and depth of their the problems and challenges they have. That's part of my role is to help come and ask them the questions 
to enable them to think more broadly and deeply about their challenges and the outcomes they could potentially achieve. Yeah, that drill holes is probably still one of the best things to remember for anyone in sales or marketing. It also brings to mind the the grass seed company. They don't sell seeds, they sell beautiful lawns. Right. So let's jump to the the four pillars of of uh, selling in of selling in uh, that you outline in your book. And uh, let me ask you a few questions about those. And the sure. the four pillars uh, that we'll, we'll we'll touch on briefly is uh, connection, curiosity, understanding, and generosity. Right. Now it sounds simple, but it's going to blow your mind, folks, when you read it. So you, you you're right that using those four things, which you explain in great depth in the book, makes your buyers feel connected interesting, understood, and valued. And uh, what's what's helpful in the book is you explain why that's so important for your buyers to feel that way. But I can't resist. I have to read one of my all-time favorite quotes from page oh. 85 from not not you, this this one time. It's Maya Angelou. And okay. I think it's, it's one of the greatest quotes uh, as it relates to sales and, and particularly customer experience, although that's not what she was talking about. Right. But she wrote, uh, people will forget what you said People will forget what you did. People will never forget how you made them feel. So you write that connection, which is the first of the four, mm-hmm. is the building block of influence. So why is that? And and I guess what, what are the things that are important for making the right connection? Uh, and, and are there certain things that sellers are doing that's actually hurting them with making the right kind of connection? Sure. Well, connection is important because, as I alluded to earlier, is it's through your connection that you establish your credibility and trust with the buyer, right? And without that level of trustworthiness being established, the buyer is not going to open the door to you to ask questions that, as I talk about in the book, that really enable you to stick your nose into their business, right? Mm-hmm. Is As sellers, you can ask a question of a buyer and depending on the level of trust that exists, you're going to get either sort of a superficial answer or maybe one that's a little more in-depth, or maybe they open the door to going really in-depth. So this ability to connect is the foundation, because without that level of trust being established, without that rapport being established with this, this person on a human level, they're making a decision even right then is, do I want to continue to invest my time and attention in the salesperson? And that, mm-hmm. that fundamentally is the heart of an interaction that we have with buyers is they're making a decision to invest their time and attention in us. And we have to give them something of value so they can earn a return on that investment of time and attention. And at the very base level, it starts with this, yeah, is trust is a source of values. Do I, do I have a level of trust with this person? Yes. I had always thought empathy was like one idea, <laughs> but no. You write that all empathy is not equal. Explain what you mean. Well, I'm a big fan of Paul Bloom's book, Against Empathy, and because I think he explained it so well, which was that in sort of the conventional sort of compassionate empathy is, you know, I can, I can feel your pain type empathy, is that we sort of think and tell people that's empathy. Sure, great. I, can f- I understand you feel a certain way, but that's the extent of it. I don't understand why you feel that way. And so it's understanding the why someone feels a certain way, what Bloom called cognitive empathy, uh-huh. gives me information to say, well, how now I can have enough information to help this person, right? Mm-hmm. Because if I didn't understand the why, I didn't have that information. And so it's really important to go, you know, not give up and go deeper than just 
yeah, I'm sorry you feel that way. It's, you know, why? <laughs> let's, let's dig in. Let's ask the questions to understand why they feel that way. And then I'm armed with enough information to say, okay, now I put in shape. can help you. Yeah. You know, I, I see so little of that in marketing and sales that even just a little bit of compassionate empathy, which is what you were describing, is mm-hmm. I, I understand how they feel. Even if a, a company or a salesperson had a little bit of that, they would still probably do better <laughs> than a lot of the sales and marketing people that I, I see out there. But you, yeah, I see what you're saying. You talked about cognitive empathy. So now I learned a little bit more about that. But let's jump ahead. And uh, right. as it relates to you know making the right kind of connection, can you explain, which is on uh, page 101, what mice have to do with <laughs> making the right kind of connection? E-gads. Yeah, I know. I, I, I'm a sucker for acronyms. Oh, but- yeah, me too. So mice is a four-point way of of beginning to build trust with with your buyer. And mice, M-I-C-E, the acronym, the M stands for, are your motivations transparent to the buyer? Mm-hmm. I is integrity. <laughs> do your actions align with your words? C, do you have, you know, establish some level of credibility about what you're talking about? And E, are you executing on your commitments? Even like calling back when you say you're going to call back. Call back when you say you're going to call back. Something very simple. Yeah. You know, as it relates to the motives, are your motives transparent to the buyer? That's a double-edged sword because so many sellers, their motives are very transparent and they're not good. <laughs> right. Well, that's that's another way of looking at it, right? But the thing is, most sellers lead with this idea that I'm here to help you. And great, I'm here to help. But too often, it only lasts until the last week of the month when the manager says, we're not going to hit our number, so go give them a big discount. They close the order this week. And it's like, well, but they're not ready. I don't know. Go give them the discount anyway. <laughs> and so, and I believe me, I've been at the receiving end of that early in my career many times. And it was like, suddenly it's very clear to the buyer that you're just transactional. You're not really there to help them. You're just there purely transactional. They may still do business with you. But if that relationship then is from that point forward is just purely transactional, they're going to look for alternatives as soon as they can. Yeah, and and the credibility will be shot. So right. I want to jump to the next one about curiosity. And mm-hmm. uh, again, I had to laugh at at, at you. I you so even though this is on page one sixteen, even though I've personally sold hundreds of millions of dollars in complex systems to enterprises around the world, and helped client companies sell hundreds of millions more. According to these tests, I don't possess any sales DNA. <laughs> nope. I don't have whatever it takes to succeed in sales, <laughs> which I thought was great. Because I once had one of those assessments and they said, No, no, this you're no, you're you're not gonna make it. Um, but at the at the same page you write, use your curiosity to find the story in every one of your buyers. Learn what is the most important thing to them and how you can help them. Get it. What are some of the things that uh, help to unlock curiosity? Well, it's, that's a great question, right? And I don't think people may innately have differing levels of curiosity, but I think everybody can learn the behavior of being curious. And it starts with just being interested in someone else. And, and this idea that I spoke to earlier is that the people that you're dealing with are unique. You know, I think that I understand some marketing show to some degree, but you know, marketing does somewhat of a disservice for sellers or maybe the way sellers take that information from marketers saying, look, yeah, 
Here's the ICP. Here are the personas that we're going to talk to. These are the things that they're generally going to answer in response to your questions that you ask. And it's encouraged by sales managers to say, look, we're just going to take this cookie cutter approach to how we sell. Mm-hmm. As opposed to saying, yeah, no, these, these people are, <laughs> this situation is unique. It's not like any other one. Similar to other situations you've been in, it's not the same because the people are different. So you have to use your curiosity and your level of interest, be sincerely interested in these people as individuals, and then use your questions to serve, begin to unlock the, the puzzle pile about, you know, what's really important to them. Why is it important to them? What do they want to achieve as a result of solving these problems? And it's not just one person. We know increasingly in, in the business-to-business space that there's, you know, five, six, you know, Gartner says, you know, up to 17 people involved in buying decisions is you have to understand this from all their perspectives. Yeah, you touched on uh, the one of two answers every seller needs, which I loved, which is what is the one thing is the most important to the buyer. And you talk about how there was, whenever, whatever you sold, there was always one problem or one outcome that was more important than anything else. Right. But let me ask you about the second one. You write, to whom specifically is this one thing most important? That was interesting. Explain that one. Because you talked about, you know, we're having to sell to groups now, groups sure. of people. But even within the group, somebody owns the outcome. Yeah, their neck is on the chopping block. Yeah, yeah. So who is that? Yeah, and it's not always. It's not always completely obvious. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's 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 sometimes it'll be hidden. That's why you have to spend time and you have to talk to all these people, and you really have to understand this idea of what's most important on really on two levels. Mm-hmm. Is and Herbert Simon talks about this, and the work he's done is is everybody looks at decisions from two perspectives. One is what's in it for the company or the organization? What's in it for me? Mm-hmm. And so you have to extend your curiosity beyond just sort of this, you know, gathering information is to get this level of understanding because, yeah, if you've got five people involved in a buying decision, you really you've got 10 different points of view you have to reconcile to build a consensus. Would I be wrong in assuming that when – you're answering those two questions. What's important to the company? What's important to the individual? Is what's important to the individual actually more important to these people? It depends how selfless they are, right? <laughs> so it's uh, well, that probably it, answers the question. <laughs> yeah, well, it depends on the situation. I mean, some people, sure, I've been in situations selling to to companies where, yeah, if they purchased our system. It was going to have an impact on this person from a career perspective. You know, maybe mm-hmm. their job was going to be eliminated, or they were going to have to. They were going to oftentimes they're going to have to learn, acquire a lot of new knowledge that, in some cases, they weren't interested in acquiring, and thus it wasn't necessarily great for them. But there are often instances where they said, "Yeah, but this is I'm encouraging that we do this, even though I may have to go find a, a new gig inside the company." <laughs> All right. Yeah. So let me just ask two other uh, quick questions before we go to the last two sections. Um, and this sure. one, this one's a, a tip that uh, I think every every person, a salesperson or parent or <laughs> anybody could use. But it's from one page one twenty four. Can you explain what you mean when you write that? Anytime you feel the need to say something about yourself, including like talking about your product, mm-hmm. which I think salespeople particularly have that impulse all the time. Yes. You recommend phrasing it instead as a question. So right. explain what you mean and maybe give an example. Sure. Well, imagine I'm selling a imaginary product that has a feature called ABC. Mm-hmm. And 
as most sellers to say, Hey, we've got this great thing that's, you know, you could do ABC and here's the features and benefits of doing ABC. Instead, you could say, well, hmm, what would be the value or what would be the impact for you if you could do ABC? <laughs> did everybody hear what he just did? <laughs> and, and so then, you know, the buyer has to think about it, right? And it's a completely different reaction to now they know, they know you do ABC, right? There's no, they're not fooled by that. They know you do ABC, but now they're thinking in the context of how it might work in their business and what it might mean for them. And so it's just an easy thing for sellers to say, look, I'm trying to keep this conversation going. I'm trying to, you know, sincerely learn what's really most important to the buyer. You have to keep asking questions in a way that are thoughtful and, and in line with what we're trying to do. Huh? They'll keep thinking about it. And maybe we come up with something. Yeah, it's terrific. It really engages them. So uh, last thing I want to ask, uh, and this it's about insight questions, which really yeah. brought to mind Anthony Anarino's book, uh, Eat Their Lunch. Mm-hmm. Not to keep talking about him. Uh, no, <laughs> I know. You write that buyers often don't know the answer to an insight question, but they probably should. So explain what an insight question is. Right. Well, there's always this emphasis on you see it in marketing as well as in sales because sales sort of relies on marketing for this is we need to, as sellers, we need to deliver commercial insights to our buyer, right? Yeah, which really brings to mind challenger sale, challenger customer. Yeah, exactly. And so what I think is more effective than, and sort of aligned with the ask, don't tell, is in line with delivering insights is you deliver them in the form of questions. So in my business dealing with uh, CEOs about sales, you know, one question I, I would use often is, well, interesting. Well, so tell me, so how many hours of sales time does it take to bring a, a prospect from initial point of contact to a close? And do they say it depends? They say they have no freaking idea. <laughs> and But they should, because this is at the heart of determining really the, the productivity of your sellers and the productive capacity of your sales organization. And when they hear that question, it's like, Oh, I should know that maybe, huh? Right. And then let's have a conversation about how we how we why yeah. that's important. And maybe this guy Andy Paul might be able to help us figure that out. Maybe he knows something about it, right? Yeah. So this is the position you're you want to be in as a seller is say, okay, well, we as a marketing organization, we've done our case studies, we've talked to our buyers, our mayor customer experience, people have talked to our buyers. We've learned that perhaps there was some value that they're deriving from the use of our product that was unanticipated, right? I think mm-hmm. in almost every instance, a customer finds a new use case for a product they didn't anticipate when they were going to buy it. But maybe over the, talking to a number of customers, said, oh, you know, we never really thought about this when we built the product, but wow, we've got these customers using it to do X, Y, Z. So that then becomes the source. You can come to the customer and say, well, yeah, we do X, Y, Z. I bet you didn't think about that. As opposed to saying, hmm, what would the impact be on your business if you could do X, Y, Z? And it's like, what? <laughs> you can help with what? that? Yeah. What? I, it, well, what it does, depending on the question, oftentimes one of the motivations and emotions that the person hearing it <laughs> experiences is, oh my God, what are we missing? <laughs> right, right. Right? What are we missing? Mm-hmm. And that's very powerful. So that, that's, that's a real conversation trigger. It leads into a discovery trigger. I mean, it's, it's very powerful. Mm, yes, and that tingling means it's working. Ah, yeah, yes. So, so we've done, yeah, connection, <laughs> curiosity, 
Uh, let's jump to understanding. Sure. And you write that uh, on page 143, understanding may be the most critical source of value you can provide to your buyers. And I want to read this next paragraph and ask you to tell us what happened. Understanding was the reason I won a major eight figure deal. We had no business winning, especially for a company of our small size. We'd been late to the party. The buyer had been in the market for two years and already winnowed the field of competitors down to their three finalists before I'd even learned that they were looking. But 10 months later, after I first called the buyer, we closed the deal. Andy Paul, what the heck did you do? <laughs> we understood, we got to level of understanding what was most important to them. And I think that this is this is so critical. And you talk about it with that quote and excerpt from the book is is if you make somebody feel understood as a buyer, you make somebody a buyer feel mis, make a buyer feel understood. That so rarely happens, mm-hmm. right? They're thinking, yeah, these guys don't really get what we do, but we sort of understand what their product does, so we're going to go ahead and buy it. And that's that's what happens in the majority of the cases. Mm-hmm. instead if it's you get to the level of you build that level of trust in the case of the story i talked about is, is yeah we were late to the game but when we start talking to the buyer and we knew they'd been in market hadn't done anything hadn't pulled the trigger on the decision is we want to understand why and what we understood why is that no one was addressing their key concerns mm-hmm. no one was saying let's talking about the outcomes they really wanted to achieve with it and we just focused on that. And so as a small company, we developed this, this level of credibility and trust with the buyer that these multi-billion dollar multinational corporations hadn't. And at the end of the day, that was decisive because they felt they could trust us. Yeah, you quoted the buyer where they said, out of all the salespeople we spoke to, I felt like you were the only one who really understood what we were trying to accomplish. Mm-hmm. I don't know. I get excited because it's I, I've been in that situation where it's like, you know, I'm telling you <laughs> what we need to do, but you don't seem to understand. But let's go back to something I mentioned earlier. Explain the difference, and there is one, between understanding and knowing. Right. The way we train sellers, by and large, to act as, and some of it comes through experience, but as, again, we've got our target <laughs> target personas we're going to talk to, we're going to do discovery with them, we're going to arm you with a playbook that has a set of questions that you need to ask and get the answers to. What happens is that becomes very robotic and very scripted, and it's like taking a survey, right? I'm going to go survey the buyer about their needs. Well, that's just a collection of facts that you know. <laughs> Mm-hmm. But what you don't have is you don't have an understanding of why those are important to the buyer and how it relates to what they ultimately want to achieve and why that's important to them. So there's this chasm, if you will, or gap between knowing something and understanding it. And that's where your curiosity really becomes important to say, well, how can I take this down another level? You know, with good follow-up questions that open the door to more discussion, the right type of, you know, asking Impact questions, one of my favorite questions, you know, getting people to start thinking about how they quantify the impact of making the decision to change or the decision not to change Mm -hmm. or vision questions, which is, yeah, once we start getting more information about what they want is now we start painting the picture of what success would look like using, now once we start identifying what's important, using our products and services, you know, those become very important. They start digging down to a deeper level and that makes the 
the idea that you're talking about in terms of what the outcomes are more tangible to the buyer. Yeah, and thank you for mentioning uh, impact. Impact questions, really uh, very helpful. But you write, back to that other point, you write, knowing information is easy. <laughs> Understanding it takes work. Yeah. So I, I can't resist this other story. It just got me all fired up on page 147. You wrote, I once closed a large sale with a European telecom company solely through the power of understanding. I was summoned to present to the managing board of the company. They had narrowed their choices down to two vendors. They wanted to hear a classic bake-off presentation. <laughs> I was prepped to present to the 12 suits seated around the conference table. Andy Paul, what happened? I looked at the audience and decided not to present, but instead, <laughs> just to start sketching out my understanding on a whiteboard of what I thought they wanted to achieve, what the problem was and what, how we could help them achieve their desired outcome. And we had this great interactive discussion that went on for you know, a little out of time, which is about an hour. And that was decisive because, again, I demonstrated that I understood their challenges with things they were trying to achieve, what was most important to them in terms of an outcome. And I couldn't have done that if I just put up a PowerPoint presentation. Yes. Let me just quote this one part because I thought this was so powerful. And then we'll move on to the last section. I stood in front of the room and outlined on a whiteboard my understanding of their key challenges and their desired business outcomes from investing in our solution. Step by step, I walked them through their requirements and what their vision of success looked like. At each step, I had the board members confirm that I was on the money. I didn't proactively talk about our proposal or product offering at all except to answer some questions that came up while I outlined. At the end of the meeting, I walked out with the board's commitment to move forward with contract negotiations. I hadn't presented. I'd made them feel understood. So let's jump to the last section. I'm sorry to have to only skim the surface here. No, <laughs> but uh, it's about generosity. And right. it's not a word that's generally associated with sales. You want to work here? Close. <laughs> so why should <laughs> why should generosity why should it be associated with sales? And what do you what do you mean by that? Because it sounds like um, you know some uh, guy like Alec Baldwin there might be saying, "Ah, you're weak." Yeah, yeah, I'm sure Jordan Belfort would think so. Um, yeah, well, I think selling done well is the ultimate act of generosity. I mean, think about it is, is we're going to take the time. We're going to listen to the buyer. That's a generous act. We're going to make sure we understand the things that are most important to them. That's a generous act. And then we're going to work with them to help them achieve those outcomes they want to achieve. That also is an act of generosity. So at its heart, you just deconstruct it that way. Selling is a generous act. And so what we have to do is we just have to be intentional about how we help the buyer and how the value we give to them and provide to them to help them be able to make their decision. Okay, but let's talk more about what value really means. Yeah, well, one of the real... There's actually a mathematical equation for all the engineers out there. <laughs> There's a, a complex mathematical equation at the heart <laughs> yeah. of it. Are you, everybody ready? <laughs> everybody ready, yeah. So value being this overused cliche on sales, as I simplified in the book, say, you know, value is equal to progress. Meaning, to the buyer, value is, as a result of investing time and interacting with you as a seller, at the end of that interaction, they're closer to making the decision than they were beforehand. 
And it's that simple. Value equals progress. If, if they didn't make progress as a result of interacting with you, there was no value in that sales call. There was no value in that Zoom call. There was no value in that reading your email, whatever it is. And again, remember, buyers are making a decision to continue to invest time and attention on you based on the fact that they earn a return on that time and attention. So if you have interactions with the buyer where they perceive there's no value, what happens? They stop giving you their time. Sellers all the time talk, well, I've been ghosted by this buyer. And I'm like, well, I'm sorry to tell you, but they made a decision. They decide you weren't worth their time. Sorry. And so we can't take anything for granted. We have to remember as sellers is that depending on the product you sell, you're going to have a very limited number of chances to interact with the buyer, right? It could be maybe five times, maybe it's three times, maybe it's a dozen times, but you don't know. But the fact is that given how limited that opportunities are, you have to be intentional about making sure that each one helps the buyer make progress or make a decision. Each one carries value. And that value could come in the form of questions. It could be data. It could be a report. It, you know, it's in the context of what you're doing. And I list out all these sources of tangible and intangible value you can provide to someone. But you have to be, as I said, intentional and thoughtful about every sales touch you have. And in my last book, prior to this one, I wrote about Daniel Kahneman's peak end rule mm-hmm. and applied to sales. And his peak end rule was, look, hey, based on his research, when people go through an experience and they want to make a decision about the experience, they take into account two primary factors, the peak event during that experience and the last event. And as a seller, you can't predict which of the sales touches you're going to have with the buyer will be the most memorable, but they will consider the peak event. I give an example in the prior book about, hey, is one of my clients, we designed the system where they became super responsive, uber responsive to inbound leads. And they just were able to do this fabulous job of converting these into opportunities. When we surveyed the buyers about their buying experiences, we did every six months, This always got pointed out as being one of the reasons customers bought. They were so responsive and had such such productive initial conversations compared to their experience with all the other vendors. Hmm. That was the first call. This just responding to a lead. That was the most memorable part of the sales process or the buying journey for the buyer. So you can't predict ahead of time. So you have to be, I said, intentional and say, look, what is the value the buyer needs from me at this point in time? in order to make progress toward making a decision. And you have to know the answer to that question. You as a seller need to know the answer to that question for every qualified opportunity in your pipeline. Yeah, just think about that decision as the the end point for them. And it can start to color a lot of the, well, I'm thinking of as a marketer, the content that could be produced. In other words, saying this is valuable for the client. No, it's not. <laughs> All we're doing is talking about ourselves. How mm-hmm. is instead this helping them to get to the end of their decision, whether it's with us or not, you know, no is my second favorite word. No, absolutely. And I think that's, you just nailed on the head is, is this is a struggle for marketers and it's not an easy, you know, there's no easy answer to it, but yeah. What can marketing do at each point along the the buying journey to help the buyer make progress toward their decision? Yeah. I mean, it seems like also a good question to ask because I sometimes hear from marketers who are maybe more in a sales fulfillment role where they're saying, give me this, give me that. <laughs> I could just imagine some you know, young marketer, perhaps like when you were a young salesperson saying, no, this isn't going to work, uh, <laughs> saying instead, uh, I could do that, but how is that going to help the, your customer get closer to their decision? Now I'm causing trouble. <laughs> right. But I think the key to that, though, is, is I allude to this in the book somewhat, but I, I had more in it, but we edited it out, is, is that 
the problem is that we're still, we as, as sellers, and I'll include marketing in this, we look at what's happening with the buyer as a sales process, not a buying journey. <laughs> right. And so- Now that was easy to say, but hard to do. Right. And so we, we say, well, based on this, normally in customers at this stage of the sales process, they might want this information, they might want this content and so on. Yeah, possibly. But the thing is, the buyer's looking at it from a def- completely different perspective. You know, if you like <laughs> take the, the Gartner famous, you know, Gartner buyer enablement spaghetti diagram that yes. you know, it's hugely complex flow chart that's not linear at all. Well, how do these two map? So in marketing, you know, I haven't really ever talked to any marketing organization or sales organization that said, as a result of looking at that Gartner diagram, have abandoned their linear stage-based sales process. <laughs> right. Yeah. Right. Like you said, it's spaghetti. It looks like spaghetti up on the wall, or, right. or it looks like a modern art masterpiece, you know, right. where it's just... Which is, which is the reality of how buyers buy. <laughs> yes. Think about think about us. Think about, think about you, listener. Yeah. So as long as we have that mismatch, you know, this marketing side still has a great opportunity to say, okay, well, it's not going to be the same for every buyer. Right is is we need to be really in touch with the seller, and the seller is really good with the the heart of it. The seller needs to be able to tell us for this particular buyer where they are now, based on their level of understanding of what's important to the buyer. This is what we need. Yeah, and I should add that uh, in the book, there's quite a bit on uh, what else is going through the customer's mind at those different stages. That is really really helpful. So uh, just two other quick questions I wanted to ask sure. about the end of the book. So that was the, the last part on uh, generosity. Mm-hmm. But the last chapter is the secret sales accelerator. Wow. You know, that almost reminds me of those four things that uh, con man was teaching you when you first started out in, <laughs> in sales. <laughs> the secret sales accelerator. I'm just going to rip out that chapter and read only that. But you talk about sales acceleration is self-indulgent myth-making by authors <laughs> and sales tech vendors who want you to believe that you can manipulate and control the actions of your buyers. So please explain what <laughs> sales acceleration is or, or is not and, and why it's such a myth. Well, you, you really spelled it out in that, that quote. It's, it's this idea that you can instill urgency in the buyer is… is well, by slashing the price? Like you talked about? Yeah. Yeah. You can slash the price. Other than that, buyers are sort of on a time frame, right? <laughs> yeah. Theirs. Theirs. Yeah. So, but what you can do though, is the time frame can be accelerated. And this is, this is known. This is not new. This is things that I experienced in my career <clears throat> that I didn't have words to put to, but it's this idea of most buyers make what's called the good enough decision. Yes. And Herbert Simon, Nobel Prize winning economist, developed this theory of bounded rationality, which said that, hey, we all have constraints, three constraints, primary constraints. When we're looking to make decisions, we have limited time, limited access to perfect information, and limited understanding of the information that we have. But what we do is that when we are doing our research and we come across a solution that satisfies our requirements and suffices to enable us to achieve our desired outcomes, we make a decision. He called that satisficing. He'd create a new word, you know, conjoin satisfies and, and suffices. Yeah. And this is what buyers do. I experienced it throughout my career, not really having read Simon to that point, but I understood is that, yeah, buyers get to a certain point. If you can be 
first to sort of these critical internal milestones, including first to connection, first to understanding, first to collaborating, creating this vision of success, is that you're going to get the buyer to that satisfied point sooner with, with your solution. And they'll say, you know, the pro- especially these days, this is more and more the case, but products are so similar. It's like, well, why should we spend another two months investigating this further? This, <laughs> this is good enough, right? We're not going to learn anything more. None of these products are substantially different. We enjoyed working with these, these people. Let's make the call. Yeah. I wonder if more people think that subconsciously than say it, but I do it all the time where I go, ah, this is good enough. Let's, <laughs> let's move on. Exactly. And so this, this good enough decision, this sort of, you know, heresy to some degree when, because everybody's so embedded in this idea as well, decisions are all emotionally driven. It's like, well, sure, there's elements of emotion, but this is a completely rational decision. This is good enough. <laughs> right. That's why on that section you write, you, you introduce the good enough decision and then you write, did I just say that buyers make rational decisions? <laughs> yes, I did. Oftentimes, the decisions your buyers make are rational, not emotional or logical. So, and this is this is the way the world works. Yes, there's an, there's another category of decision makers that Simon pointed out called maximizers. And yes, we will always in our career will will encounter maximizers, people that will look at every single option that's available in order to ensure themselves they're making the absolute best choice. And the research shows that they do make the best choice. <laughs> they also tend to have the biggest degree of buyer's remorse because as soon as they make the best choice, they think, well, there must be something better out there that they missed. Um, <laughs> but setting that aside, is it the good enough choice is what people want to do? Yeah. And you think about when you bring buyers together and they're, they're buying committee and you got these stakeholders, this task they're being asked to undertake, it's not their job. Right, they're being taken away from the things that they're being paid to do, mm-hmm. that they're being maybe even bonused to do in order to help make this purchase decision. Do they want to invest unlimited amount of time to be able to do that? Hell no. Mm. If you can help the buyer get to that point of saying, "Yeah, this works for us. This is good enough, and we're going to be able to achieve the things that are most important to us with it," they'll pull. They'll make the decision. Yes, and that's that's you want to structure how you approach the customer through with the pillars to be able to be the first one to these milestones that I talk about in the book, which is, you know, it's your first to, first to understanding, the first to curiosity, the first to credibility and trust, the first to answer why you, I sort of address them in reverse order, mm-hmm. is that's how you get to that point. So Andy, Paul, if readers took only one thing away from the book, what would you hope it would be? Understanding what their job as a seller is, which is to listen to the buyer, to understand the most important things to them are, and then help them get it. That's your job. Well said. Well said. And that was also in the book. It is. Hey, it's all coming together for me. <laughs> no, no, no. It's so, so true. It, but again, it's easy to say, uh, really hard for uh, organizations and salespeople to do. But if they can, maybe even a little bit better than their competition, they're going to do well. So. Yes. What is one thing a listener could do today just to put in action maybe one of the ideas we talked about from your book? When you start talking to a buyer, right? ditch the pitch, right? Ask a question instead. That could have been the, the, the title of your book, actually. <laughs> I think it's been done. Probably. Oh, yes, that's right. Maybe that's why it was in my head. So yeah, ditch, ditch the pitch. Oh, my goodness. But that's so counterintuitive. I'll get yelled at. Try it. Yeah. Just try, try it. it. Yeah. yeah. Oh, 
my goodness. So uh, looking back, what books have most inspired your work and career? Well, I think from a, a business book standpoint, certainly this book um, was The Coaching Habit by Michael Bungay-Sanyer, mm-hmm. which I think is just an absolute jewel of a book. And, and I believe you, you, you mentioned him in the book, didn't you? Yeah, probably. And yes, I did. And he introduced me to my publisher, which is his publisher as well. And, but the book is just so funny, so smart, so spot on, concise, you know, eminently readable. It's just, yeah, I've recommended it to everybody I can. And he's yeah, been rewarded because yeah, he sold a, a ton of these things. Oh, great. Yeah. You know, I just bought a book that's not going to be on the show, but I was reading called The Trusted Advisor. Yeah, Charlie Green, David Meisel. Yeah, and uh, it's the 20th edition, 20th anniversary edition. I'd never read it, but I just started it. And I'm going to read The Coaching Habit next because I've heard so much about that uh, book on the the show. I'll be honest with you. I do this so I can find out about other (laughs) books. Well, yeah. Well, Mike, have Mike Michaels. Very entertaining. Oh, okay. He'd be a great guest. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, Charlie Green, co-author of Trusted Advisor, Charles Green, good friend. Oh, um, really? Okay. Well, we'll send good vibes their way because I just I just bought their book. Yeah. I mean, yeah, he's sort of, he's sort of semi-retirement now, but- um, Yeah. Interesting. Interesting. Well, are there any recent or upcoming books that you recommend or heard of that you look forward to uh, to reading? Yeah. My friend, Anthony Iannarino is coming out with his new book, Elite Sales Strategies. Um, you're talking to him on my show. Yeah. His yeah. fourth book. Yeah. Yep. And yeah, Anthony's, I don't think anyone's written more about sales than Anthony because he's blogged every single day for, (laughs) I don't know, 15 years or something. I mean, he's very consistent and extremely thoughtful. Well, his best friend, Jeb Blunt, will tell you Jeb's written more books. (laughs) But yes, Anthony is like the Seth Godin of of sales in terms of blogging every day. It's amazing. And it's good. Yeah, no, he's very thoughtful. And uh, well, Jeb, I kid him because if ninety days goes by and he hasn't written a new book, then <laughs> so, right? Um, yeah, it's almost unfair to to bring him up. Yeah, he's yeah prodigious in his output. Other books I'm reading, I really love the books by Dan Rome, and uh, rereading his, his book called Draw to Win. You know, Dan was I think his first first book very popular, Back of the Napkin. It's all about visual thinking. Oh, and, interesting. Yeah, he's he's fascinating individual as well. And then he's got a new book, which I haven't gotten into yet, called The Pop-Up Pitch, the two-hour creative sprint to the most persuasive presentation of your life. Oh, wow. Interesting. Yeah. So I'm, I'm trying to get better at, well, <laughs> by definition, it will be better because I'm really bad, bad at it, better at, at you know, visual thinking and, and drawing things out because I do think yeah. it's very powerful. You know, I didn't know about him, and now I'm looking at him here on Amazon, and I'm thinking, great, thanks for adding to my list. This looks; his books look really interesting. Draw to Win, The Back of the Napkin, yeah, Show and Tell, yeah. Wow, it looks really interesting. So I appreciate and, you you mentioning and then that. Another one I'm I'm just picking up now because I just met this person. Uh, book is called Hello, My Name Is Awesome. Oh, Alexandra Watkins. Yeah, yeah, and, she lives in San Diego. I can look across the bay from where I sit to almost see her house. Uh, she yeah. knows she knows Ron Burgundy. Yeah. <laughs> so we just we just met recently. Uh, we're both in a a mastermind group together, and and so yeah, I'm getting in her book. But yeah, she's yes, yes, she's terrific, and 
She and I interviewed her about the second edition of that, which was absolutely fantastic. And even just yesterday, I was talking to a friend, and I sent him a link to that interview because he was looking at naming a podcast, a new podcast. I said, "Up oh, comes the naming. You better, you better read her book." So yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. So yeah, those are things I'm I'm working on now. Oh, good. Good stuff. Good stuff. So at marketingbookpodcast.com, we're going to include links to everything linkable for you, the listener, uh, including all the books that uh, have been mentioned, to uh, Andy's site, to his LinkedIn profile, to his Twitter account. Make sure to put in hashtag death to salesy when you're uh, sharing uh, this. This Absolutely. Yes, death to salesy. And, you know. And and think of Anthony Annarino when you say that simply because that was the first place I'd ever heard anyone say that in his uh, endorsement of your book. But also there's a few other – there's a bunch of really cool extras. There's like at your site, which we'll include a link to, there's a free chapter and there's a – can you tell us about this selling in challenge and the playbook you're offering to readers? Yeah. So, well, so we've got – yeah, those are bonuses for people that that buy the book. Mm -hmm. There'll be this uh, sort of five-day email challenge just – each day, give somebody something to, to work on mm-hmm. uh, with regard to one of the pillars, the four pillars. Uh, we've got a implementation guide we call the Sell Without Selling Out Action Workbook. Mm-hmm. And uh, yeah, it's a great way to serve, be more in-depth in your understanding of what we talk about in the book. Yeah, take that first step. Start to uh, yeah. marinate in this. Also, yeah. there's a, um, this is the part I really like, This there's like a salesy assessment where Yes. You, people, I'll, I'll include a link to that as well, but it, it, it's a questionnaire you answer and it's how salesy are you? <laughs> I wonder how many brave people will, will respond. Well, if we, yeah, we've had a better part of a thousand people take it so far. So yeah, a lot of people are clicking on it. It's, it's not scientific. <laughs> it's just meant to be fun, but also, you know, provide a point for you to sort of think <laughs> about it. On the spectrum between selling out and selling in, where do you sit? Well, as a favor to you and to humanity at large, when I have my next really awful sales experience with someone, I'm going to send them a link. Excellent. <laughs> to that. So, well, now a word for you, dear listener. I want to ask you a big favor. And no, it's not for a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. Although if you do, please send me your mailing address so I can mail you a small thank you anywhere in the world. And no, it's not to send me a bottle of wine Although if you do want to send me wine, like some listeners have, I I like Cabernet Sauvignon. No, I want you to reach out in some way to Andy Paul and congratulate him on the book and thank him for being a guest on the Marketing Book Podcast. Send a message on LinkedIn or Twitter or, or go to his website. Don't go to his house. That's freaked out some past guests. But start with the uh, the electronic means. Um, if nothing else, just thank him for putting up with this knuckleheaded host of the Marketing Book Podcast. Seriously, guests on the show have told me that they really enjoy hearing from Marketing Book Podcast listeners. And yes. not, not just because Marketing Book Podcast listeners are so ridiculously good looking. Also, if you're listening on your smartphone and you subscribe to the Marketing Book Podcast on your favorite app like Spotify or Apple Podcast, all these links can be found by going to this episode right now and clicking on the episode's website link. The book is Sell Without Selling Out, A Guide to Success on Your Own Terms. The author is Andy Paul. Andy, thank you very much for joining us on the Marketing Book Podcast. Douglas, thank you for having me. It's been so much fun. And that closes the book on another episode of the Marketing Book Podcast. I hope you enjoyed it and found it helpful. Special thanks to this episode's sponsor, the first of its kind NYU Executive Masters in Marketing and Strategic Communications. Find your path to the C-suite. 
For all the details, visit this episode's website page at marketingbookpodcast.com. And if you are one of the many, many listeners who have left an iTunes review, please let me return your kind favor by mailing you some Marketing Book Podcast bookmarks and stickers. Just send me your mailing address anywhere in the world, and I'll drop it in the mail. And remember the words of the late, great Jim Rohn, who said, formal education will make you a living. Self-education will make you a fortune. Today, we welcome Andy Paul to talk about his book, Sell Without Selling, out, oops, sorry, 